Hi, my name is Seth, and I'm the pastor of Perkinsville Church. It's an honor to have you join us for one of our worship gatherings online. I hope it's an encouragement to you, and I want to encourage you to connect with us in a more meaningful way. Joining us in person on Sunday mornings at 8.45 or 11 is a great way to do that. But you can also do it right now by downloading the Perkinsville app or going to perkinsville.org connect. And when you do that, I'll have an opportunity to connect with you personally, and I would love that opportunity. In the meantime, I hope this is an encouragement again, and enjoy a glimpse into the life of Perkinsville Church. Good morning, church. Um, I'm very glad to be back with you this week. As Seth said last week, uh, this time last week I was in Paris, France for way longer than I wanted to be, um, drinking a bunch of little coffees trying to stay awake. But uh, the trip to Hungary was great. I'm very uh, grateful for the opportunity. God taught me a lot. I know that many of y'all were praying for me, and for that I I greatly appreciate. Um, Additionally, I'd like to say a special thank you to the elders of Perkinsville, um, to Steve, Ronnie, Phil, Matt, and especially to Seth um, for allowing me to come preach today and thinking enough of me to allow me to do that. And I, I would say, like to say a special thank you to Seth. Brother, I know you're watching in a hammock on a beach somewhere, um, but um, I thank you for the past 10 years of your preaching that I've sat under. You're the one that taught me the beauty and the glory of expository preaching, being faithful to God's word. It was under your preaching that I came to faith and that I've been sanctified over the last five years. So I appreciate that. Um, so yeah, let's, uh, let's get into the sermon here. I'll, I'll pray before we get started. Father, I thank you for bringing us to this place, Lord. You're sovereign and bringing each one of us here, Lord. We're here for a purpose, and that's to glorify you. God, that's what our lives are for. God, I pray that this message will be sharpening to your saints, Lord, that it will teach them and grow them, Lord, that we will all grow in your image as we go about our day-to-day, Lord. Let our songs be pleasurable to you so that your name may be glorified, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. So several months ago, uh, Seth, Matt, and I were meeting on a Wednesday morning to discuss the sermons, that we, the text that we would preach through for the next quarter. Um, in case you don't know, here at Perkinsville, we preach through a book of the Bible at a time, just starting chapter 1, verse 1, and preach straight through, um, not skipping anything. And right now we're preaching through Acts. We're about halfway through. Um, Seth will probably take another year to finish that. He goes really slow. But um, we decided to take a a four-week break for Advent and to talk about um, Christ. Our goal was to answer the question, what child is this? I'm sure you've heard that song. So we each picked different topics or different attributes of Christ that we felt had really impacted us, and that's what we preached on. So I know uh, if you've not been with us, Seth uh, started us off the last week of November and preached on the divine king. Um, Matt then preached on Christ the priestly king. Last week, Seth preached again on Christ the joyful king. And today, I'm preaching on Christ the warrior king. Um, This topic, I chose this topic because this attribute of Christ has had a really big impact on my life as I've read it and studied it, read authors that have written books about this topic. really made an impact on my life. So I guess the reason why is I see the modern church, um, we've been influenced by secular society. Most people, most Christians have the same view of Christ as um, non-believers. They see Christ as a little more than a historical figure. Um, 
And this is for several reasons. One, due to our cultural lack of believing in miracles, cultural influences of liberalism and social justice, as well as an Arminian gospel that overemphasizes Christ's love and compassion while virtually ignoring God's wrath, anger, and judgment that's promised in the Bible. Because of this, we now see, both Christians and non-Christians, we see Christ as some long-haired hippie that was walking through downtown Jerusalem with a Life is Good t-shirt and Chacos holding up a sign that says, Love is Love. This is a really incomplete view of Christ. We've done a big disservice to our King who came to save us. Um, and it is true that Christ is gentle and lowly. He is loving. He loved more than any man ever could have. He is humble, and he can sympathize with our weaknesses, as Matt preached on. And as Seth preached on last week, he was joyful in the cross. But in the modern church, we've sold Christ short by, by stopping there, as if we were even supposed to be selling him at all. So imagine going to a car dealership and paying full price for a car only to receive the tires, or ordering a sandwich only to receive a few pickles. That's what we've done with Christ, and that's not a very good thing. And because of our view of Christ, we've made a church that's incredibly weak. Our, our songs that we sing in church sound a lot more like love songs to our boyfriend Jesus than praises to a high king. We have become so soft that we don't speak out against the pagan culture that shouts blasphemy against our God, that kills image bearers of God, and that preaches a fa false gospel of secular humanism. But after all, love your neighbor, right? We would hate to hurt someone's feelings. That would be a shame. We've forgotten that Christ flipped tables in the temple and called men animals. We've forgotten what Christ really did when he came. So this brings us to our text today. Um, our text will be out of the Gospel of Matthew, um, so please turn your Bibles to chapter 10 of the Gospel. We'll be reading out of verses 34 through 39. If you don't have a Bible with you, please use one of the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. Um, if you're using those Bibles, it's on the text today is on page 815. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that Pew Bible with you, read it, and enjoy it. So as you're flipping to the text, I'll introduce um, Matthew. Since we've not been going through that, I'll give you a little backstory. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew records the events of Jesus' life from his birth to the cross all the way to his last words before the ascension, his ascension into heaven. After Matthew's introduction to Jesus, he recounts Jesus' ministry in Galilee, where Jesus calls his disciples, where he travels around raising the dead, casting out demons, and healing the sick. Matthew then records the Sermon on the Mount, and now that brings us very close to chapter 10, where Matthew records Christ's commissioning of his disciples to go out and do ministry. In this chapter, Christ gives a rather dim mission briefing before our text. He instructs the men to go out and perform miracles and to proclaim the kingdom of God. But he also warns them that they are stepping out as, quote, sheep among wolves, that they will be faced with a great deal of persecution. This is a rather dim mission briefing. He tells them that they will be mocked, beaten, and arrested for the sake of Christ, maybe even killed. He then commands them not to be anxious, as God will provide for them in both body and soul. And this brings us to the part of the passage that we'll be through today. So, if you will now, read with me verses 34, starting in verses 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
So first, a few words on what this text is not speaking about. Verse 34 is not a reason to go home and open up the gun safe. I certainly believe that there is a great time, or plenty of time in the Christian life for self-defense and the use of weapons, but I would not draw that theology from this passage. Secondly, verses 35 to 37 are not a reason to disobey your parents, assuming that they are Christian and not causing you to sin. The Bible clearly commands in many places that children are to obey their parents. Um, this text is... I'm sorry. In this text, Christ is using what biblical scholars call hyperbolic language or exaggerated language. An example of this would be if someone today said, I'm so hungry that I can eat an elephant. Obviously, that's not the meaning of what we're saying. You couldn't really eat an elephant. But what you're trying to do is emphasize a point. That's what Christ is doing here. So what Christ is trying to say is that we should dearly love our family and our friends, but we are to love Christ more than our closest earthly love. Christ even allows us to enjoy material things like food and drink and nature and art, but we're not to ever worship those or idolize those over Christ. Verse 34 repeats multiple times the phrase, love blank more than me. This is clearly clarifying that point, that it's not that we're to not love those things, but we're to love Christ more. So that's an important point. So now let's look back at verses 34. Um, Christ says in verse 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. This is the heart of the sermon where we draw the theme, the warrior king, where the sword on the stage comes from. Christ's mission was not to come and make everyone on earth get along. He isn't commanding his disciples to go out and make friends or make everyone like them. And at this point, and this point is not just in this verse. In this chapter, it's throughout the entire Bible. Throughout all of Scripture, we can see this theme of Christ, the warrior king. So I'd like to share with you a few passages throughout Scripture that bring us to that topic. Now, I'm going to reference some other Scriptures, but please don't feel the need to turn there. They'll be up on the screen behind me. But if you look back at Matthew chapter 1, Matthew records Christ's genealogy. That's a very big word for saying his family tree. It's got a lot of big names that I would have a hard time saying, and the passage is long and time short, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. But if you will look back at chapter 1, verse 1 of Matthew, and the Bible says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew's done a very beautiful thing by showing Christ's lineage back to David, who is the next person I want to bring up. Um, many of you all probably know David from the Old Testament. You've probably read the story of David and Goliath as a kid, if you grew up in church, and probably even if you didn't grow up in church. But 1 Samuel 17 tells the story of David and Goliath, something we've all probably heard. But David, the small man, who was, a, um, who was a shepherd, defeated the big giant that no one else could defeat. Um, this seems like a very uneven fight, and it's a very surprising ending. But this paints a picture of David, a great warrior, who defeated the giant. But contrary to popular belief, the story is not really about David. And also, you are not David, and Goliath is not the next big task in your life that you have to finish. The story really isn't about David or you or anyone else but Christ. This is a foreshadowing of the great warrior to come, Christ the warrior king. 
So now we're turning back to Matthew 10. If you look with me at verse 38. Verse 38 says, And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And Christ here is making reference to the criminal cross that we all know. Um, but at the time of his saying of this, his apostles did not know that he would die on a cross because he had not told them and that had not happened yet. In chapter 10 of Matthew, that happens later. But his disciples would have clearly known what a cross was. They know that that was the cruelest form of execution and punishment of that time for criminals. And they also knew what it meant to carry a cross. The crosses were big, heavy wooden structures that were that the criminals had to carry through the town before they were executed. And this was a time when they would be beaten and flogged and mocked. And this was a very, very cruel punishment. And so the disciples would have clearly understood the language that's being said here, that they must suffer for Christ's sake if they are to follow him. So this brings me to a little story that I have. Um, if we'll turn forward in the pages of history, about 1,400 years. There was a man in William Tyndale, born in England in 1494. Some of you may have heard of William, the name Tyndale. Um, you probably have some books that were published by Tyndale Publishing Company. That was a company that was started in his honor. If you have an NLT Bible, I would encourage you to look now at the spine. It has Tyndale's name on it. If it's not on the spine, it will be in the front cover. Um, but even if you've not heard the name William Tyndale, you definitely know, have been affected by his work. Um, William Tyndale was the first man to spearhead the project of translating the Bible from Greek and Hebrew to English directly. And he was the first man to use the printing press to reproduce the Bible. Before then, most Bible translations were translated from Latin to English, and additionally they were all copied by hand. So there were not many Bibles available at this time. You would think that everyone would really love to have a Bible in English. But the Catholic Church at the time was very against this. They had a tyrannical rule on, on society. They were involved in government, and they did not want the common person to have a Bible, because that would have weakened their authority over men. So the church persecuted Tyndale very sharply, trying to stop him. Tyndale spent most of his life fleeing all through Europe, trying to finish his project. At one time, he fleed up into Germany from England. Um, people would often hide him in, his house, in their houses to protect him while he was finishing his work. Um, later in Tyndale's ministry, after he completed his translation project, he was using the printing press to print Bibles. Um, and the, the church in England was buying these Bibles and burning them. But Tyndale celebrated the fact that the church was now buying his Bibles because he said that for every Bible that was bought, he had the money to print two more. So his work was being multiplied by them trying to stop him. That's by God's grace. Um, so in 19, I'm sorry, in 1534, near the end of Tyndale's life, he was betrayed by a man who he thought was a friend. Tyndale was arrested and charged on account of affirming the doctrine of salvation by faith alone and Christ alone, the core doctrine of the Christian faith, what makes you a follower of Christ. This is what the church in England at the time persecuted him for. On October 6th of 1536, Tyndale was killed and burned at the stake. His last prayer before he died was this, and I quote, Lord, open the eyes to the King of England. In 1939, three years after, 
Three years after Tyndale's death, King Henry VIII mandated that every parish church in England make copies of the English Bible available to all members. This was a great success. Tyndale never knew this, at least not on earth, but God certainly used him in a mighty way. But this story and this sermon is not about Tyndale. It's not about David. It's about Christ. So I want to draw back to the Bible, and I want to keep going on drawing this theme from cover to cover. If you will, look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Um, this is my dad's favorite verse in the Bible. It's kind of confusing. I think you should ask him about it later. I don't know why the fall of man is my dad's favorite. I do know why, but you should figure it out. <clears throat> so the Bible says in Genesis 3, chapter 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Right after the fall of man, right after God had completely rejected, or man had completely rejected God and turned away from him, God made a promise that he would redeem his people. At the time, they didn't know what that would look like. They didn't know the, all the characters of the timeline, but God made a promise that he will hold fast to the end, redeeming his people. And this promise is all the way from cover to cover in Scripture. Now if you will look at Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. Verses 11, starting in verse 11 says, Then I saw the heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood with a name by which he is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with rod and iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now this sermon is not about eschatology or our view on end times. Um, I also don't have time to debate with Dave Mugg about post-mill eschatology after this service. But um, the what I'm trying to draw is a point from cover to cover of Scripture. We have Christ, the warrior king. And that's something that the historicists and the predecessors, the dispensational to the post-mill can all agree on. That from cover to cover, God has made a promise to redeem his people. That's the spine of Scripture that runs through. Christ, the great warrior king, runs through this spine. This story is all about him. He's fighting to redeem his people, and he is saving them. He's saving all who repent of their sins and who submit their lives to him, who are willing to lose their lives for his sake. He came not to save so that we could live free and easy, not so that we could just have more friends or an easy life, that we could just sit on the couch, but he came to show the glory of his father. He came to show the world what his father could do. This Christianity thing has never been about an easy walk through the flower patches, but a life given to the fight for the kingdom of God. So as I wrap up the sermon today, I want to leave you with this. The sermon is not about King David. The sermon is not about Tyndale. The sermon is not even about you. Instead, it is about Christ. To the Christians, and especially the men in the room, I want to leave you with this. I want to leave you with some encouragement. 
in an effeminate church where the bathrooms smell like a Yankee candle store and the buildings are decorated with flowers all over, where we sing love songs to our boyfriend Jesus, there's still a place for strong godly men in the church. And it's on the front lines fighting for the kingdom of God. No, God did not need to use weak men like you and I to build his kingdom, but he chose to, to show his strength. So stand up, brothers. Surrender your lives to the king. Stand up and fight for his kingdom, even if it means losing your life. For whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. Father, you are the sovereign king. Lord, you're the one that predestined this plan of redemption to show the world your glory. Father, teach us to submit to you and to build your kingdom. God, you have saved us, and you will hold us fast to the end. You've made that promise. God, we owe you our lives. Lord, teach us to submit to that and to fight for your kingdom. God, I pray that as we leave today, the sermon will be applied to our hearts, that we will live lives more pleasurable and glory to you. In your name we pray. Amen.